some of the similarities. Both these verses say, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Who's the you? We know in the English language we have difficulty with the idea of you, don't we? It can be plural or singular. Uh, What do we mean by you? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Well, here, I think Jesus, as he speaks to his group of disciples, as he's called his disciples aside to teach them, as, yes, people are overhearing what he has to say, he says, you collective, you plural, are the salt of the earth. You are the salt, singular, of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's fascinating, isn't it? It seems to be that Jesus is saying to this group of people, you will be these things. You will be salt and you will be light. Now, sure, as Jesus was speaking to this group of people, this collective, if you like, this new group of people that he was calling together, this new Israel, if you like, He also saw that it would have implications for individual lives. And I think it's too cute to try and draw too many distinctions between the two at this point. But I think the emphasis here is on them as a group of people as they've gathered together. What else does he say? He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's a a statement of fact. If you follow me, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you will be. You will have a public face. There's no privatised religion envisaged here at all. You will live out your life in a public way, in a way that brings attention, in a way that's different to the world around you. It's part of your makeup. It's a bit like saying, I'm Australian. I was born in Australia. I have a terrible Australian passport. I'm always surprised they don't arrest me when I go overseas with a passport like that. You're, you're clearly someone who's dodgy. But I cannot deny I'm an Australian. I was born here, that's the way I am. When you become a Christian and a follower of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Anything less means you're not being who God called you to be. It's a simple statement of fact. So let's together think about what these things mean. And let's unpack what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Well, let's consider the statement, you are the salt of the earth. Now, salt is meant to have an impact. I remember this particularly well with a lady in my first parish. Um, I was working there as a youth minister and she was a very absent-minded woman. Absolutely delightful, godly woman. Had four children. Used to invite us around for lunch and afternoon tea regularly. Played the piano beautifully but completely absent-minded. 
So I remember one day turning up and she wanted to give us a cup of tea and she spent ten minutes looking for the kettle because she'd buried it somewhere in some cupboard. Then came the cake and she had to call her husband in to go looking for the cake because she'd put it somewhere unusual in the house. Well, one day we were at a working bee and some biscuits were delivered from this home. As we bit into the biscuits, we almost threw up because she had decided that she should replace the sugar with salt. She thought salt would be a good idea. She'd run out of sugar. She thought salt would be fine. Now, that's probably a negative example of how salt has an influence, but it does have an influence, doesn't it? If you put it in food with like MasterChef, you've got to put a little bit in and make sure it's the right amount because it brings out the flavour and the taste. Uh, you also know about it in terms of preserving meat. And I guess most people would suggest that Jesus is speaking about the idea of preservation here when he speaks about salt. Uh, there are some other Old Testament links which I don't think we'll explore today and I hope you can explore in your small groups. But I think Jesus is saying here when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's talking about the influence of, influences of Christians on this world in preserving this world, in ensuring that it doesn't go rotten or more rotten. Well, I don't know whether you've thought about that before. You are the salt of the earth. You have a role in this world, a God-given role to preserve what takes place in this world, on this earth. Jesus, however, does raise a problem. He foresees that something might take place. He says, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown and put thrown out and put and trampled underfoot. Um, there's a lot of discussion here about whether salt can lose its saltiness, etc., and I, I guess it can't. But I think the point is, that Jesus is trying to make, is that salt can lose its effectiveness. It's possible for salt to claim its salt and not really be salt. It can no longer preserve in the way that's intended to. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here about people who come together and follow Jesus. It's possible that in time you might call yourself a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus, but in reality you're actually no different to the world that you're trying to preserve. You're the same. There's nothing terribly distinctive about what you do and your behaviour. And it's possible to slide that way. I've felt the temptation myself. Have you been in situations where you've been at work and all of a sudden people raise questions about Christianity and what it's like to be a Christian? Or perhaps as a church we've sometimes made statements which don't seem politically correct and we cringe. There is a great temptation to feel like we need to withdraw and lose our saltiness. But Jesus says, 
you are the salt of the earth. If you're going to live out what it means to follow me, that's what will take place. Now, let's look at light and we'll come back to think about what that exactly means. Fact, you are the light of the world. Now, I think for most Jews listening to this, they would have understood that Jerusalem was a place of light, that Jerusalem was the city of light and they would have imagined, I think, that Jesus was referring to the idea that people would come to Jerusalem in one day, that all the nations of the world would one day be saved because of Jerusalem or because of the light that emanates from Jerusalem. And so we read in passages like Isaiah 49 these words, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So I think people here would, it sounds as if they would have been more familiar with what Jesus was saying about the idea of light and being a light to the nations. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that Israel struggled with that. Uh, They struggled all the time with the idea of being a light to the nations. In fact, most of the time they weren't. They They sort of detracted from the light. But that's what they were called to be and who they were meant to be. And Jesus is saying that about those who follow him. You are meant to be a light. A light to those around, shining into the darkness. You have to assume there's darkness if you're going to have light. And so Jesus is saying, the follower of Jesus shines into the darkness. Again, he raises a question. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. There is a temptation to hide light, although that's not natural, is it? Uh, to, To light a lamp and then hide it? That doesn't seem the right way forward. And I think that's the point Jesus is making. If you're going to be a follower of me, it's not natural to hide. It's not natural to have a privatised religion. It's a public statement if you're a Christian. It's a public statement to all those around you that you follow Jesus. Now, I think the point here that Jesus is making is that will particularly be evident in the way that you behave and what you do. And so he goes on to say, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It seems to me that Jesus is pointing us towards good deeds. He's saying that the fruit of our following him, the result of our following him, will result in good deeds. Good deeds not pointing to ourselves, not saying, wow, aren't we wonderful? Look how good I am. No, deeds that actually point to the Father in heaven. Deeds that point away from us and to the Father in heaven. Not good deeds so we feel good about ourselves. Isn't that such a temptation? To do good deeds, to do nice things, to do kind things for other people in order that you feel good. I do that. Do you? That was a nice thing I did. I'm having a good day. I was nice and kind to that person. I didn't need to be. Jesus isn't calling us to that. He's calling us to live out our lives 
naturally in a way that reflects our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and to point our good deeds towards those, towards Jesus and to the praise of our Father in heaven. So let's not be scared about doing good deeds but let's make sure that they point to our Father in heaven. Let's make sure that that's the direction they're going. Well, of course, down through the ages, uh, people have been salt and light. And they've been salt and light in lots of different ways. And I think the chapters here, uh, chapters 5 to 7 in Matthew, help us start to understand what that salt and light might look like. We heard last, year, last week it will be about being meek, about showing mercy, about being a peacemaker. As we'll see in the coming weeks, it will be about valuing marriage, telling the truth, turning the other cheek, loving enemies, giving to the needy. This is what it means to be salt and light. This is the way this is lived out. If you want to know more, read the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what Jesus is calling us to. Look at what he says should characterise our lives. Of course, as Christians have done this together, they have seen tremendous changes in our world. Certainly in those early times after the church was begun, we saw some amazing things develop. So in Acts chapter 6, we see the church gathered to choose seven men from among them who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom in order that they might serve others. There were so many people in need, they decided to set seven people aside to look after those who were in need. Eusebius writes uh, much later that in Jerusalem, the church was serving 1,500 people each week, caring for them, looking after them because they were in need. And such was their reputation as Christians that over a period of time, people became to resent the Christians and their good deeds. And Julian, for example, uh, Emperor Julian said this, they devoted themselves to philanthropy, sorry, need a drink, and have gained ascendancy in the worst of their deeds. He was angry with the Christians because they were promoting good deeds and they were influencing the whole of society. And he wanted them to stop. In fact, he was saying, can our priests do the same thing? Because it's having such an influence on people. That's what happens when Christians get what it means to be salt and light. People notice. It influences our society and our culture. It influences the way we think. And Jesus has said to us gathered here this morning, to those who follow Jesus, you are salt and light. We shouldn't be embarrassed about that. It's a task Jesus has given us. We should embrace it and relish it and celebrate 
that God would call us to such a special task in this community. Now I've been excited to read, as, I, as you know I've just started and I'm starting to get my head around what's, what's happening here, but I've been excited to read about your social action team and the desire to see people trained, taught, in underst- trained and taught in understanding what it means to be involved in supporting others, but also to fundraise. In fact, just this morning I learnt that we as a church raised $3,087 for Tier Australia to support people overseas in need. I think that's just absolutely fantastic. That's a church working together to be salt and light. Now, I want to discover what that means also for our area here in Newtown and Erskineville. I want to think about what that means as a church together. How does that work? What does it look like? for us to be salt and light in this community. Because we actually have no other option but to be salt and light. And so let's think about what God has called us to. And if you've got ideas, please come and talk to me about them. Because I'm interested at this very early stage in thinking about what does it mean for us as we gather together as God's people to be salt and light in this community. To the glory of God the Father to his glory, not to ours, to his glory, so that more people might come to know and love him. There's a pigeon, isn't there? Two pigeons. As we come to the end this morning, I thought I'd finish by interviewing someone. I want to invite Bob up. Bob is someone who's determined to be salt and light in our community. And someone suggested to me that Bob has learnt the hard way what that actually means. So, Bob, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and what it means for you to be salt and light? I guess there's hard and there's hard. But, um, so, I'm an accountant and I work at the City of Sydney. Uh, and the border of the City of Sydney actually starts on Church Street. So, if you're on that side of Church Street, you're in our LGA. And so, if you can think of an org structure, there's a CEO, then we have a CFO, there's a guy called Bill, a friend of mine, and then there's me. So I look after all the reporting, the treasury management, and uh, you still on? And uh, budgeting and all that sort of thing for the city of Sydney. And just in, by way of context, I suppose we turn over about half a billion dollars. We have about a half a billion dollars under management. So every Monday, I have to try and work out where that went over the weekend, and if it was a good news story. And uh, I have 14 to 15 people working for me. I think it's 14 at the moment. Yeah. Okay, so that's what you do. That's what I do. That's a very interesting environment to be a Christian in, no doubt. Some would say. <laughs> Some would say our accountings are not that fascinating, but anyway. How do you... But that, that actually raises a really important question, isn't it? doesn't it? I mean, part of being an accountant is doing things right, isn't it? It's the integrity involved. And so I reckon integrity and accountancy are very important in our systems and actually part of being salt and light. I, I, I love Christian accountants. Good on you. Good on you. I think they're fantastic. We need them. We do. No, no, we need them all throughout society. If you're an accountant out there and you're working, we need you. More power. We need integrity. Yep. And we need honesty within our systems and for people to recognise that that's important. Actually, give them a clap. Thank no, you. Thank you, Tim. 
I'm humble. But it does, I guess, also give you opportunities, rather than the, sorry, with the honesty and integrity, people would recognise that about you, I suspect, to speak and to do other things with people's lives. Can you, have you got any examples of how that might work for you? Well, I guess um, in my team of 15 people, there are three Christians. Um, where I work, uh, a lot of what the City of Sydney is trying to do is not about making a profit all the time, it's about helping the community. And that's one of the reasons I work there. So a lot of what they're trying to do kind of aligns with where Christians you know, would put their efforts, I suppose. But we also have uh, a very big um, alternative lifestyle element to the organisation. So you're certainly not allowed to push any religious views. So it's delicate. But what I do uh, at Christmas, for example, just as one small example, uh, every year they have a Kris Kringle, you know, where you hand each other silly toys and everyone stands around whilst you open, I don't know, uh, hair dye for a grey-haired man or something like that. Uh, so myself and another Christian bloke, a guy called Phil Stevens, who was at Moore College for a year, we give each other um, tear cards for 20 bucks each. So we open our little card and people generally say, why on earth would you want a goat, you know, or something like that. So that does lead you to uh, be able to have a discussion later on about why you'd bother, you know, why you wouldn't want some silly licorice dispenser or something, whatever, whatever else other people get. So that, that's one way. Um, I guess the other thing I do notice about work is I'm constantly mocked for being a Christian in a fairly sort of jovial way, but I never, you know, I never ever back away from that. So I always... Uh, you might turn the other cheek. Well, yeah, <laughs> in a nice way. I say, well, I actually have the secret to absolute truth, so if you really want to talk about it, come and see me. <laughs> One person has. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so you're saying sometimes it's a bit delicate and it's a bit challenging, and I guess that's the, diff- that's the thing about being an influence, being salt and light. It will have actually have its challenges. In fact, in the passage just earlier, prior to the one we read today, Jesus is talking about the possibility of persecution. <coughs> and I guess you're intimating that sometimes that may be uh, the path that, that you wandered down uh, because of your current work circumstances. I did have one fellow who actually runs the cleansing area. So he's got 250 people working for him. And somehow it came up that I was a Christian and I spent my Sundays here. And he did say to me, well, I don't think I want to be your friend anymore. <laughs> Clearly a very anti-Christian guy. I will say the it, you know, end of meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well look, thank you. Let me just pray for you. And thank you for sharing a bit of your story with us this morning. Father God, we thank you for Bob and we thank you for his commitment to serve you both here and uh, in his workplace. And Father, we ask that you continue to be with him. um, Help him to be a man of integrity and faithfulness and honesty. And we pray that you might work through those things as he does good works to give him opportunities to speak with people in order that they might give your name praise and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Well, as we continue our service this morning, we're going to sing together our next song, O Great God. And I'm going to invite you to make this a time of prayer uh, directly after someone else will also continue to lead us in prayer. Or Donovan will be leading us, continuing to lead us in prayer. But I ask you just maybe to take the time, uh, the words are on your service order as you came in, and just think about before God what he's calling you to be and to do, particularly in light of the light and salt that we've been speaking about this morning. So let's sing together.
I ask you to remain seated.